Daisy, the universe is a cruel, cruel mistress. <laughs> I mean, okay, yes, but uh, why now? Why, th- why this? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> why is today unlike any other day? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so venture back but one week ago to mm-hmm. when you were telling me about how you fell down the stairs. Oh, my God. I was so concerned for you. I cannot believe I didn't immediately call or text you about it. But I think it must have just been the day before Lisa's wedding and I was so crazed. In your defense, you de- like you took all the lung wind out of you. <laughs> the lung wind was gone. <laughs> the that phrase is, is you knocked the wind out of yourself. No, I took all the lung wind out. I like that better. <laughs> So that was brutal. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly recall sitting here and thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, I can't imagine. Well, now I can because oh I fell down an entire flight of stairs. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. I did. First of all, are you okay? Second of all, are we cursed? I feel like we're cursed. And I was thinking that you cursed me by telling me about the event. But oh, we yeah. so frequently take the same dive. the amount of times i've talked to you and i couldn't sleep and you're like oh me too i'm like oh bummer we did it again i okay we spent a lot of time in the woods we spent a lot of time specifically hunting for fairies and leaving little rocks places and spent an entire day trying to catch fish with our hands like we did that oh, no, we successfully caught fish with our hands excuse that's me that's true we did <laughs> Minos, do it to be specific <laughs> so i would not be surprised if we received a curse from a fae no i wouldn't either you will be forever tied with this girl and it will manifest in the same insomnia and the same rib cracking falls Oh, my God. So how did you fall? What happened? Okay. It's Halloween weekend. It's Saturday. I'm getting all dressed up in my super amazing fairy costume. Wings, ears, flower crown, dress. It occurs to me that I didn't once think about the shoes because fairies don't wear shoes for sure. Right. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. So I dug up a pair of old pastel pink boat shoes that I had, and for anyone who's ever worn a boat shoe, you'll know that you either have to scuff them up on the sidewalk or you have to cut them up Mm -hmm. with, like, scissors or a knife. Turns out if you leave them alone for years and years, they regrow back together (sighs) into the slickest surface. So I, uh, I put them on and I thought to myself, wow, I really shouldn't wear these. I'm too clumsy. I will slip. And then I went, no, it'll be fine. It was not fine. Narrate a voice. It was not fun. (laughs) (laughs) I banana peel slipped on my (gasps) stairs and went down every single one but the last two on my butt, my ribs, my back, my neck, everything. (laughs) Oh, my God. I tried to play it cool at the end. Like, I fell and then kind of went into a thinker pose holding my head. (laughs) I was like, this is the coolest I can be. I am neutral. This is no big deal. Um, <laughs> but okay. First of all, I'm super impressed that you could even pretend to be cool. I I immediately tried to yell for Jamie, couldn't because I took all the air out of my lungs, and then well, eventually... that's what you're supposed to do. 
You're supposed to, <laughs> when you take like a world altering fall, you're supposed to get to scream about it. Those are the rules. Super fine. And at the same time, I pulled a total looking for Alaska and I just kept going, I hit my head. <gasps> oh, no. Oh, no. See, that's the one nice thing. I hit my butt and I hit the middle of my back and I guess I curled it forward enough nice. to not hit my head. Good. But not not great. And are are you okay? Is your head okay? I... I don't know if I am stupider or that's just wishful thinking, and this has always <laughs> been the state of things. It wasn't great. Anyway, I feel like a crunchy, crunchy, fossilized version of a, what I once was. Oh, same, but I don't know if that's just what my life is now or also I that I fell down the stairs. <laughs> and I think you're such a trooper for telling that story because I remember thinking like, wow, that must have hurt, and she seems pretty okay. And having now experienced it, I can confirm things were not okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it it was not fun. I For me, it was more scary than anything else just because I haven't knocked the wind out of myself since I was a little kid. Mm, like falling off the swings or getting yes. wrecked off the big toy? Yes, that's exactly oh, what I was thinking of. <laughs> Do you think other people call them that? Like the big toy and the little toy? Oh, no. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. Um, in our in our elementary schools, we had two kind of separate playgrounds. One for the really, really little kids, like really little. And mm -hmm. then, you know, a proper playground, you know, with the slide and the swings and the monkey bars. And we called them the big toy and the little toy. <laughs> it, yes, it makes sense. This is English. We are so good at English. You know why? Because we have a podcast. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Ooh, with the slick transitions, and I'm Tracy Harrison. Slick as my boat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're so slick. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you, dear listener, would like to support our podcast, a super fast and free thing that you can do is leave a review wherever you listen. It really, really helps us out. You can also support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. And don't forget to check out our new merch at willingandfable.com. Ron, I don't I, I was going <laughs> to... I was going to say I don't know about you, but I really love Are We Get It? Your Goth design. And then I realized... <laughs> We're both wearing it right now. I would love to say we coordinated, but as a factor of our shared curse, it's really just that we <laughs> oh both God. don't do the laundry together at the same time. It's so true. It, truly, the only reason I, I have plans to do laundry at all is because I need clothes for when I come out and visit you. Every time I put on our merch, I just think, thank God my name isn't on this anywhere because it would be the height of ego. It is the height of ego, but no one can know because this is a podcast. We have a face for radio and uh, <laughs> no one can tell I'm wearing my own my own merch. Mm -hmm. We're sneaky. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Do the thing. Do the thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Or... You can support our show by sitting around a table with your friends 
or getting online and rolling some clicky-clacky dice around while playing Imagination with your pals. But no matter what you do, we appreciate you. Ooh, timely, appropriate. Guess what? This week's episode is completely sponsored and brought to you by the wonderful Leah of Greenleaf Geek. And you know she's been a huge supporter of the podcast all season long. We are so proud to bring you an entire episode that we've created to highlight how inspired we are by getting to game with our Greenleaf Geek dice and enjoy all of Leah's awesome gaming supplies. And her new merch. Y'all, they have bats and skulls and trees and witchy hands on them and d20s and everything you could want also just as a highlight for what an amazing artist leah is my thea dice that she made that have little spell books and tea and fun wizardy things in them they're still my favorite dice of all time the best part of all of this is she has a buy one get one 50 off sale going through the month of november so y'all make sure to jump on that stat Absolutely. This month is about to close. Treat yourself. Actually, really, do your Christmas shopping now or whatever holiday you're buying presents for. This is your moment. Yes, get it done early this year. It's so crucial. Her much-coveted Keyfish dice are also available for pre-order, so this is a good time for that if you're a Critical Role fan. And should you miss the sale because you don't have it together, not unlike us, you can always use our coupon code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. So, in order to celebrate all things nerdy, Rowan and I wanted to share our love of Dungeons and Dragons with you all and pair it with our love of mythology. Hmm. That means this week, we're bringing you our version of the D&D Monster Manual. We are going to tell you the real-life myths behind two of our favorite D&D monsters. And for those of you who might not know, Dungeons & Dragons is a collaborative, storytelling, tabletop role-playing game, otherwise known as a TTRPG, in which you and your friends play as adventurers on a quest, you fight all sorts of monsters along the way, the world has concocted homebrews, and a myriad of wonderful characters. With that explanation out of the way, let's talk about mythical creatures. All right, the first creature we're going to be talking about today are golems. I love this so much. I love this so much because I love them so much and you did all the work. (laughs) (laughs) This was my gift to you. Thank you. (laughs) So... A golem is a magically created monster in D&D that is based on the golems of Jewish mythology. In the game, there are four standard types of golems. These are, from weakest to strongest, flesh golems, clay golems, stone golems, and iron golems. Though, these creatures can actually be made out of any material, which gives my nerdy little brain so many fun ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cotton candy golem. Cotton candy golem. <laughs> <laughs> they have a neutral alignment and are typically made and controlled by a wizard or a cleric. So Rowan, I know you have a particular mm-hmm. connection to flesh golems. Why don't you tell everyone about the one you played in our last campaign? So I joined the campaign Tracy was playing in that was run by the lovely Tim Black, who was on our Whiskey and Fable episodes. Uh, I joined it late, and 
it's Pathfinder, and I had an idea of a character that I wanted to build, and I knew how I would build it in 5e, but Tim really went just above and beyond and helped me translate that into Pathfinder. And her name, well, I guess, okay, The Divinity (laughs) didn't really care a super ton about pronouns, so throughout the campaign, they got they, he, she, uh... Flesh Golem, created in a lab by a scientist, we're thinking Frankenstein vibes, designed mm-hmm. to look like Frankenstein, uh, with one arm that was a sorcerer's arm that could cast fire, um, yep. despite the fact that they were not a sorcerer, <laughs> um, <laughs> barbarian, and they were kept in a lab and taught by the scientist who created them that, that they were a god. And not really taught about how the world worked in any way. And kind of the only understanding they had of the world was that the scientist was the the gaudiest god. And they Mm -hmm. were the next level down. So when they got out into the world, their understanding of language wasn't very good. Like, right. They didn't know what was going on. I remember that. Right. Pronouns are like, whatever. I'm I'm a god. You As long as you worship me, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we asked, that was one of the first things we asked. And they're like, you know, goddess divine, the great one, the divinity. And we settled on calling them divinity. Yeah. We took, we took out the the. Right. <laughs> so that was a super fun character to play. I love a construct, a, a creature that is made by humans and doesn't know how to human. Yeah. Yeah. She. I mean, that character as the campaign went on became so interesting because my character, Phaedra, who was an alchemist and a scientist more than anything else, they the two of them really got along at first because Phaedra was so scientifically interested in divinity. And then as Divinity began to learn more about what it meant to be, recognize that interest does not equal love. Yeah, yeah. And you and I talked about this, but the only affection that they had received was in the form of interest, scientific Mm -hmm. interest. So they just – that was the only way they knew how to feel that. So the fact that she was all over that was – was a great place to start and then as their relationship corrupted it made it all the more painful it was also interesting because uh divinity became increasingly more feminized as the campaign went on because divinity was trying to mirror phaedra for how to human which so, is the worst person in that no, party it was to the mirror worst choice. <laughs> we had some very genuinely like good people in that campaign and really it was a really, really interesting group of players, and and Divinity chose the really just cold, kind of mean alchemist. Yeah, you the things that make you comfortable are your history, and <laughs> often puts people back into abusive, less than ideal psychological conditions. Anyway, I love Divinity. I I live and die by some Divinity. I would play them again in a heartbeat. (laughs) They were really fun. So that is Divinity. That is Rowan's time playing a flesh golem. But let's talk about the creatures that inspired the golems of Mm D&D. In Jewish tradition, the golem is most widely known as an artificial creature created by magic, 
often made to serve its creator. It's grown in popularity over the centuries and inspired such stories as Frankenstein and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Sometimes this creature is the hero of its story, saving Jewish people from persecution or death. However, more often, the golem is a symbol for what happens when you use the power of life and death and it goes astray, thus turning it from promise to terror. This next fact may come as a bit of a surprise given how popular golems are, but the word golem appears only once in the Bible. One time, really? One time in Psalms 139.16. In Hebrew, golem means roughly shapeless mass. So, the Talmud talks about golems, and the Talmud is largely about law, but I want to clarify that it should not be confused with either codes of law or with a commentary on the legal sections of the Torah. The Talmud uses the word golem to mean unformed or imperfect. Mm. So, we're going to jump to the Bronze Age. In many Bronze Age mythologies, God is depicted as a potter. For example, a relief at the Temple of Luxor in Egypt depicts the creator god, Khnum, at his potter's wheel, making human bodies from clay. In the biblical book of Job, believed to have been written between 600 and 450 BCE, Job says to Adam, You and I are the same before God. I too was nipped from clay. And Adam is called Golem, meaning body without a soul, for the first 12 hours of his existence. 12 hours is a long time to go without a soul. <laughs> that's, like, that's a minute. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> Listen. It's a long time. We've been doing it longer. <laughs> oh, going over two decades without a soul is that... It is. <laughs> I love seeing the way that different cultures have gods making people. Yes. I feel like it's such a good insight into what materials they had available to use in their daily lives. And what was precious to them because a lot of cultures talk about water mm -hmm. and water being a source of life. And so it's cool to see some go with water, some go with. A lot of times, you know, salt water being a representative of chaos. And then gods, their own bodies often create the world. So mm -hmm. it's cool to see how they create our bodies out of something within the world. I, uh, no, nah, I, I will wait until my section, but our, our two stories tie in in that regard. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. It is speculated that Jewish scholars developed the Gollum legend based on the story of Adam's creation. Traditionally, Gollums are very similar to other men, except they cannot speak, because only God can grant that power. This is why most Gollums are depicted as being mute. There is a story in the Talmud about a group of rabbis who grew hungry while on a journey, so they used the formulas in the Sefer Yetzirah, or Book of Creation, in order to create a calf out of the earth. J. Michelson writes for My Jewish Learning that just as God speaks and creates in the Genesis story, so too can the mystic. 
The word abracadabra, incidentally, derives from avra cadavra, Aramaic for I create as I speak. Ooh. Right? I didn't know that. I didn't either. Thus, under the rarest of circumstances, a human being may imbue lifeless matter with that intangible but essential spark of life, the soul. The Kabbalists saw the creation of a golem as a kind of alchemical task, the accomplishment of which proved the adept skill and knowledge of Kabbalah, end quote. I did not know the origin of abracadabra. Ab no, abracadabra. And, and abracadabra has fallen out of fashion so much in unless it's like corny magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something you hear as much anymore. I feel, well, a lot of magical sort of stories that I've been reading lately, fiction, don't even have a spoken component to the magic. Yeah, magic nowadays in depiction is usually just something that comes from within and shoots it out of your hands. Huh. Interesting. Like sorcerer versus wizard? Yeah. I always love an alchemist. I love watching people play characters like that. Um, I'm, I have come to realize about myself that I like playing fighters and barbarians. I just want to hit stuff really mm, hard and mm -hmm. roll a lot of dice with it. I only want to play – I love to play an artificer, but I only want to do that in a heavily RP-based campaign. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to do that in an only battle-based setting because yes. I'm not that crunchy. I can get crunchy, but I just don't enjoy it if it's all battle all the time. I will also go to being smash smash with you. Yeah. Listen, I love playing with friends. I like playing my imagination game. I'm not a big um, rules person. I'm that person where as soon as you start explaining the rules to a new board game, all I hear is TV static. Oh. <laughs> brain, brain don't want to learn new rules. It don't. You have to play with us because I <laughs> – well, I am very – I okay, I love to win a game. Everyone who knows me knows that I can be pretty competitive but outside the scope of the game, I super don't care. Like, as soon as the game is over, <laughs> I don't hang on to it. So I am very happy to tweak and change the rules. I'm just still going to try to win. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so you should come and play with us. Because if you're like, I don't like that rule, I'll, be, I'll just say, cool, it's dead. It's, it's gone. It's not even that I'm like, oh, I don't like that rule. Literally, the barrier for me for playing so many games is that I have to learn new rules. And so... I have to be kind of gently forced to play a new game and forced to sit there for 10 minutes angrily while my brain tries to put together the rules. That's why I love one-shots, especially indie one-shots that are designed only with D6s. Yes. You can't get that complicated. No. By the way, if you would like a set of all D6 dice for your indie one-shots, hint, 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 Greenleaf Geek has iconic D6 sets and individuals in a variety of colors. It's great. <laughs> okay. So, Rowan, I hear mm. you asking, how do you make a golem? Tracy, how do you make a golem? Oh, my God. That is such a good and insightful and thoughtful question from such Thank a wonderful you. and beautiful person. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> According to Jewish Virtual Library, to make a golem come alive, one would shape it out of soil and then walk or dance around it saying a combination of letters from the alphabet and the secret name of God. To kill the golem, its creators would walk in the opposite direction, saying and making the order of the words backwards. Oh no, that's heartbreaking, because the golem has to watch you circle it saying the the backwards killing words. Oh god, I hate that. Now that's, yep, yeah, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that, Rowan, and now I hate it. There's no fast death, there's no switch off, it's I'm killing you backwards, around and around the, oof, oof. And they're smart enough to take direction, so theoretically they could understand. Okay, so we don't love that one, but there's other ways. There's other ways to make and, and uh, destroy a golem. Another source says that once the golem has been physically made, one needs to write the letters Aleph, Mem, and Tav, which is Emet and means truth on the golem's forehead, and then the golem would come alive. Erase the Aleph and you are left with Mem and Tav, which is Met, meaning death. A third way to bring the golem to life was to write God's name on a parchment and stick it in the golem's arm or in its mouth. This is known as a Shem, and once it's removed, it would stop the golem. It's interesting to me that truth is the opposite of death. It, it's death. Death is truth w without a letter. I like Which, that. There's something very poetic in that. Right. I don't know what it is yet, but I love it. Yes, I do too. Uh, it's All of this was so cool to research and to learn about and to, to dive into. And, and while I was researching, there was one story that came up over and over and over and over and over again as sort of the definitive story of the golem. Okay. And that is the golem of Prague. Hmm. So you ready for a story? Yeah. There exists a famous legend, one that has been passed from generation to generation like a cherished family heirloom, lovingly polished and passed along year after year and decade after decade. The story takes place in Prague in the late 16th century. During this time, Christian priests claimed that Jewish people killed Christian children and that they used their blood for Passover matzah. This was known as blood libel. Priest Tadius, under the guidance of Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, was especially fervent in his preachings against the Jewish population of Prague. He often stirred up angry crowds who attacked all the Jewish people, and some say he even sent his own people to frame them, to ensure no one would be on their side. One night, Rabbi Lowe, known as the Maharal of Prague, looked for a way to protect his people. He asked for a vision, and was told by heaven to form a man out of clay. He did as he was told and formed a humanoid-shaped creature out of mud and inserted a shem, a clay tablet bearing the name of God, into its mouth. Through his power, Rabbi Lowe was able to bring this eight-foot-tall clay creature to life. Its eyes lit up the night as the spark of life flowed into its muddy body. The creature, known as a golem, was named Yosef, 
and was said to be able to turn itself invisible and summon spirits of the dead. Rabbi Lowe was able to control the golem, and he commanded it to protect the Jewish people of the city. He would always deactivate the golem on Friday evenings in order to observe the Sabbath and allow the creature to rest. With each incantation, the creature began to grow stronger, but also more violent and unpredictable. Some people say that the creature fell in love, and it grew violent after its heart was broken. But alas, we will never know the true tale. What we do know is that one Friday evening, Rabbi Lowe forgot to remove the Shem and deactivate the creature. The next day, the creature, without clear instruction, began rampaging its way through the city. Rabbi Lowe was in the Old New Synagogue reciting Psalm 92 when someone rushed in to inform him of the chaos caused by the creature he made. He hurried outside and confronted the golem. After a brief struggle, he was able to remove the Shem and he deactivated the creature for good. It is said he did this by removing the E from the word emet, or truth, on the creature's forehead, thus changing the word to mean death. Rabbi Lowe never revived the golem. Instead, he had it locked away in the synagogue's attic. To this day, Palm 92 was recited twice during services in that synagogue. And that is the story of the Golem of Prague. I have so many questions about the mechanics of creating a golem. I don't know that I'll have very many answers for you at all, but I love a good thought experiment. Oh, I mean, I don't expect you to. I guess it's just, it's made of clay. Are we firing the golem or does it just stay wet? Does it dry over time in the sun? Is it... Probably would dry over time in the sun. Think of clay houses, kind of mud houses as they dry and get more solid. Are we doing like the Michelangelo of golems or is it... Oh, I would love that. I mean, it depends because in some... You know, in the beginning, it said that golems, the only way you could tell a golem from a man was that golems didn't speak. But then you think of the way we see them depicted today as sort of just kind of... Mud monsters. Mud monsters. Four limbs and a head. Right. And that doesn't seem accurate to some of the versions of the... I think it's mythology. I think versions and accuracy changes as people tell stories. Right. And then if this golem is experiencing love, where does the love come from? Like, how does it... Identify with love. Okay, I had to include that because that was wild to me. All every time I saw the idea that the golem fell in love, had its heart broken, and then started rampaging, never had any more detail. Never said who he fell in love with. Never said why that person broke its heart. No explanation beyond. Maybe it was mad because it had a broken heart. So I had to include that because that was a wild sentence. But I could not find any more about that. So if anyone knows or has heard stories about that, please let us know. Because now I want to write another story about a golem falling in love. Absolutely. And if the only thing that differentiates it from a human is the ability to speak, because only God can grant that, then love is not an inherently human ability. We love that. We That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But then where... Where does the golem feel love? Is the golem hollow or is it solid? I would imagine it's solid given how strong it is. I don't... 
I don't know why the <laughs> like the mechanics of it really stick for me. Be I just I feel like how we define the mechanics of the golem will influence how the golem can operate in society. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think it's flexible enough that you get to say what it is based on what works for you. And then this so obviously reveals how messed up I was by Toy Story. Okay, but, go on. But is Build-A-Bear basically just a golem workshop? Oh, I think it is if your heart wants it to be, babe. I think it is. Because <laughs> you have to put that little heart be. in them, and then you can also put little voice boxes in them, but you don't have to. Ooh, okay, so now I want to write two stories, one of a golem falling in love and another one of a build-a-golem workshop. Can we just have an all-golem fiction episode? <laughs> Oops, all golems. <laughs> no history. We already covered it. Only fiction. <laughs> only fiction, only golems. I love that. But since we need to cover the history, should I tell you a little bit of history of the yes, story yes, of the yes, golem of frog? <laughs> <laughs> okay. In 1833, the synagogue in which this story takes place was renovated. But, Rowan, no golem was said to be found. Some later versions of the story say that the golem was taken from the attic and buried elsewhere in a graveyard in Prague. But given that the attic is not open to the public, my stance is that we'll never really know. Giving it burial rights seems like a very big deal. It, it is if it, if it happened. I mean, did it exist? If it existed, it, was it really in the attic or no? Was it taken out? Is it... Did it leave? Did it leave? I mean, there's just so many questions. But there are many different versions of this story I told you. In some versions, Rabbi Lowe uses a Kabbalistic formula to create the golem. Sometimes the golem never becomes violent at all and is only put to rest once its job of protecting the Jewish people of Prague has been completed and the blood libel has ended. According to New World Encyclopedia... The golem has a variety of powers according to different legends. Invisibility, a heated touch, and the ability to summon the spirits of the dead to serve as witnesses for the crimes against the Jews. Some versions involve the emperor of Austria, who initiated the persecution of the Jews, and later beseeched Rabbi Lowe to call off his golem. Ooh. End quote. It, okay, God as a potter is just mm -hmm. inherently so cool because it pottery vessels he's just creating vessels and then using godlike power to put all the things that make these vessels human into it right so then we have man who is made in the image of god presumably yeah. you know making oh, yeah. vessels as well mm -hmm. and you can put some of the zhuzh in the vessel but not all of the zhuzh right and I am also so interested in the idea of a golem that can find dead witnesses to serve mm -hmm. as w witnesses for a crime. But then does the golem have an understanding of justice or is it just doing a task? And if it understands justice... It seems like in a lot of stories, the golem is extremely literal. It's like, an, it's like a, a computer. What you tell it to do is what it does but it's not good at interpreting the commands. So there have been some stories that I was reading where the golem became really destructive because the commands were not given 
mm. appropriately enough for it to understand. Clearly, I'm the kind of person that struggles with folks being mean to their Amazon Echo, so. <laughs> oh, same. I, I say thank you, babe, to all my devices. I really do believe, though, that people who are mean to specifically female-coded computer devices, that's, like, very much something that raises my my intuition. Oh, yeah. People who are mean to any devices. It doesn't even have to be female-coded. Just, I don't know. Why be mean to the robots? Right. I'm just coded this way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, arguably, the largest critique of the story of the Golem of Prague is that it does not seem to appear before the mid-19th century in Germany. Remember, the story takes place in the late 16th century in Prague. The earliest account seems to be from 1834, though all of these early accounts are written in German by Jewish writers. It has been suggested that they emerged as part of a Jewish folklore movement parallel with the contemporary German folklore movement. The Jewish Encyclopedia of 1906 cites the historical work Zemach David by David Gans, a disciple of Rabbi Lowe, who once again, remember, is known as the Maharal. This was published in 1592. In it, Gans writes of an audience between the Maharal and Rudolf II. Our Lord the Emperor, Rudolf, sent for and called upon our master Rabbi Lowe and received him with a welcome and merry expression and spoke to him face to face as one would to a friend. The nature and quality of their words are mysterious, sealed and hidden. But it has been said of this passage, even when the Maharal is eulogized, whether in David Gans's Zemach David or on his epitaph, not a word is said about the creation of a golem. No Hebrew work published in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, even in Prague, is aware that the Maharal created a golem. Interestingly, Rabbi Lowe himself, who was a historical figure, didn't believe in miracles, condemned magic, and never wrote about golems. What? Yup. Okay. He was a really famous rabbi. He, he existed. He was known as the Maharal. And at some point, people attached his name to the idea of a golem story. But he existed in the late 1500s, and these stories really came about in the mid-1800s. So, not looking like this story is based on actual... Yeah, just an interesting choice of figure when you had all of history to choose from. I think because he's a really, maybe because he's a really well-respected rabbi, he was really highly regarded. Hmm. In 1909, a manuscript supposedly written by Rabbi Lowe's son-in-law was, quote-unquote, discovered by Orthodox Rabbi Yudel Rosenberg. Though scholars describe this as a literary hoax designed to make the Gollum story seem more legitimate or older than it actually was. Gershom Sholem, a German-born Israeli philosopher and historian, described the discovered manuscript as containing not an ancient legend, but modern fiction. Hmm. So it seemed, it, based on context clues, 
in the mid-1800s, there was a German folklore movement, and sort of parallel to it was this Jewish folklore movement where the story of the golem was created, and then a few things were pulled kind of out of the woodwork to seemingly make it more historically accurate. I would argue, I think, it's still a really impactful story. Oh, of course. We talk about this all the time. Something doesn't need to be historically accurate or based on truth or reality in order to be really impactful in the way that we interpret it as people or share those stories or the way that it reflects who we are as a society. Right. And so many stories exist in this place that is not for proof. And right. you can hunt them down if you want to, but that's not that's not what the story is for. Yes. Yeah. I think with so many myths, the idea is to teach us a lesson. And I think the story accomplishes that because the story is about our hubris and our, our want and our desire to control life and death and our inability to do that. Well, and it could fall into that discourse that I encounter a lot when I'm researching non-human creations in fantasy is that like traditionally we view women as creators of life and mm -hmm. there are so many stories of men trying to create life on their own oh, and then yeah. it becoming perverted. Yes. Yes. And I don't necessarily think that this story like needs to be viewed with that lens but i do think it falls into that larger heading of absolutely how, how do humans create life what does that look like and how does the way we do it impact the outcome yes yeah and i think your idea of how does the way we do it impact the outcome is so big in the golem story because it always starts out really powerful and promising and then quickly as the golems become independent creatures of their own, they outgrow their masters. Because remember, they're always controlled by a master. So that mm -hmm. need for control, that very human need to control, is lost. And then the golems go from symbolizing hope and strength to fear and loss of control. And we have cultures that focus on humans tending to what they create tending to the earth and you can see even now how that impacts how we live in contrast to cultures that focus on only the hereafter and how mm -hmm. kind of this world doesn't matter and how that impacts how we deal with the earth and industry and i think that the golem it could potentially be a symbol for that like how are we caring for this thing how much responsibility do we have? Yeah, that's really true. I hadn't thought of that at all. It's such a cool story. It just, it, and it keeps being told again and again and again. And that's part of why I think I really like it is the way that it's grown over the years. So let's talk a little bit more about how the Golem has grown since the story of the Golem of Prague. Literary scholar Ruth Bienstock Analik has explored the feminist aspect of golems in her academic work. Writers discussed by Bienstock Analik who have explored this aspect of golems include Cynthia Ozick, The Pudermesser Papers, and Marge Piercy, He, She, and It. 
K. Chris Hurst writes for Learn Religions that a feminist take on the Gollum myth wonders if the concept of Gollums is a veil code for the role of women in Jewish culture. The primary function of Gollums is to save Jewish people from danger, but some Gollums assist with homemaking duties, like lighting stoves on the Sabbath and fetching water. Hmm. End quote. So I just wanted to include that because I think I, I get really excited by the idea of people critiquing and analyzing and discussing their own religion and their own views of the way stories are told within that religion. So I got really excited when I saw that there was a writer who specifically looks at golems in an academic sense through a feminist lens. Yeah, I, I love that. I could read that all day. Yeah. And that's why I added Cynthia Ozick and Marge Piercy's writings as well. Because the idea of people, especially women, exploring stories and telling things from their own perspective just gets me so excited. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's talk about a really old movie. <sighs> okay. <laughs> the legend of the Golem of Prague inspired Gustav Meyring's 1950 novel, Der Golem, which in turn inspired Paul Wegener's classic set of expressionistic silent movies, the most famous of which is The Golem, How He Came Into the World. Oof. Oof. Mm -hmm. I already mm -hmm. know I would love watching that. And here's the thing I'm thinking. Silent movie. We... Everyone who's going into that movie already has accepted the idea that the film is going to be silent, so you really can't play with the idea that the whole film is silent. How does that describe the golem who can't speak canonically in their place in society? And that's so frustrating because mm -hmm. it's like a meme. Like everybody understands the language of memes and right. you understand the language of silent films and you don't have any other alternatives to contrast with. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love I love watching get all excited about <laughs> movies and <laughs> and then different forms of storytelling media. I have a picture here of a still from the movie if you want to describe it. Mm-hmm. So this picture is all green toned. So if mm -hmm. it's imagine if you took a black and white and just made it completely green toned and it has this man with a haircut that looks like the berries and cream kid <laughs> it does. um and he kind of has like an emo kid vibe like he's got the sunken eyes he's looking very dramatically at this what looks like a ceramic terracotta clay figure mm -hmm. of that looks a lot like him, actually, in terms of haircut and styling. And I'm sure that this is more the mechanics of making a film rather than in this story. But this figure looks like it was cast. Like you have a mold and then mm -hmm. you pour into it rather than you have clay and you build up. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. He, They did a really good job of of making it look formed yes and the setting is all spooky castle-y yeah. windows and you imagine the lightning crashing at any second yes it has very strong spooky lightning storm energy vibes <laughs> <laughs> most of those were words not sure that was a sentence yeah it was on willing and fable it was a sentence willing and fable it was a sentence 
Wikipedia informs me that The Gollum, How He Came Into the World, is the third of three films that Wegener made featuring the Gollum. The other two being The Gollum, 1915, and the short comedy The Gollum and the Dancing Girl, 1917, mm. in which Wegener dons the Gollum makeup in order to frighten a young lady with whom he is infatuated. Haha, <laughs> how funny jokes. <laughs> Don't you love being terrified by someone who has a crush on you? Isn't that everyone's dream? Hmm. <laughs> All right. So The Gollum, How He Came Into the World is a prequel to The Gollum. But The Gollum, How He Came Into the World is the only one of the three films that has not been lost. So <sighs> by nature, it's the best known of the three. Right. Gollums appear in... Many forms of media, they're featured obviously in Dungeons and Dragons, which is why we're talking about them today, as well as in the game Minecraft. Hmm. Marvel Comics resurrected the Golem of Prague as a heroic character created by Len Wein and John Buscema. That's first appearing so cool! In, right? I love comic books. It first appears in number 134 of the second series of The Incredible Hulk, then in issue 174 of Strange Tales in 1974, lasting oh for only two more issues, 176 and 177, then reappearing sporadically in other Marvel comic series. A golem contrasting with the Hulk? Right? Oh, I could talk about this forever. Yes, he contrasts with the Hulk, who everyone just looked at and went, gamma rays. Yes, everything about him makes sense. I just... It's the idea of those two together, and it's specifically the Golem of Prague, so this Golem that is meant to be a hero, but then got kind of corrupted, contrasting with the Hulk, and that they brought him in as a heroic character. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. And the Hulk already, his whole theme is, you know, what have we wrought upon ourselves? Ah, mm -hmm. oh, that's cool. In James Sturm's 2001 graphic novel, The Golem's Mighty Swing... A Jewish baseball team in the 1920s creates a golem to help them win their games. <laughs> Lastly, Terry Pratchett writes about the golem in Feet of Clay, which is a novel in his Discworld series. Constructs, man. Constructs, man. <laughs> <laughs> Say a word excitedly, add man afterwards. That is our That's the formula. MO. That's our formula. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I had for the golem. I get excited about constructs. It was a gift for you to tell you, you the history and the story of it. And it was really fun to get to research and see. I, honestly, I thought there would be so much more in terms of lore and myth and history for them. But it's a pretty straightforward, here's where they came from. Here's a couple of stories that were told. And it hasn't shifted that much over the years. A golem in its original form isn't that different from a golem now. Well, you know, a Jewish scholar would be so much better at examining this than me just like having an idea on the fly, right. <laughs> but I would be so interested to read about how people interpret humanoid things that we create now through the lens of the golem in historical religious text. Right. Because we create so many things that to me, at least, are very run very parallel to that idea. Yes. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we cite My Jewish Learning all the time because mm -hmm. it's the best website. But I'm always very interested 
to read about how scientists who are both religious and scientists Mm -hmm. describe their own work through that lens. And I feel like there's something there. I I, I feel like I'm sure someone is thinking these big thoughts. (laughs) Someone out there is thinking bigger thoughts than we are, but boy, howdy, are we doing our best. (laughs) All right, time for me to do my best. Yes. Today I'm covering gin. And this is a lore that I really didn't know anything about diving in, so I'm just going to go right for it. Let's do it. Many of us are familiar with the character of a genie, especially thanks to Disney's Aladdin. Someone finds a magical lamp, and upon rubbing it, out comes the powerful being who was trapped inside, offering the person who released them three wishes. The genies are bound to the lamp, and thus the lamp holder, but very often, the wishes that are granted to this main character harm them or Mm -hmm. take them to their downfall, and we get to examine again what have we wrought upon ourselves. Yeah, these both these stories have a lot to do with control and power. Oh, you know <laughs> that when you said I want to cover the golem, I went, "Okay, I'm going to call <laughs> Okay, I'm going to cover Jin. Let's go." You did go. jump on that so quickly. We we didn't spend a ton of time digging into what we wanted to cover. We just sort of figured out pretty quickly these two characters from from playing D&D and t- the times we interact with them and wanting to dive into what made them. Yeah, I wanted to explore Jin and also support you exploring golems because I think that they are a part of the D&D world, but they are not just the traditional dragon, goblin right. that everyone thinks of, but they are a part of the fabric of this large universe. I, very much so. I've played multiple campaigns where we've run into them. And... The tale of the genie, as the layman will know it now, is a story of morality and greed. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes a really interesting part of gameplay. Also, be careful what you wish for is the phrase that immediately comes to mind. So genie is the anglicized version of the Arabic jinni. Though there was some inconsistency in my studies, I've generally found that Ginny is the singular, traditionally masculine form of the word, and Jinya is the feminine, and then Jin is the plural. Hmm, okay. Sometimes folks will get that all sorts of mixed up, but, you know, Mm -hmm. you just gotta read for context clues. And it comes from the root word Jinina which means to hide or conceal. And since we regularly talk about words on the podcast that we read but can't say, Mm -hmm. for anyone who might want to do other research, it's spelled D-J-I-N-N or just J-I-N-N if you want to do some searching. And I was really excited to learn about the djinn because I've never known very much about them outside of the Disney cartoon and D&D lore. Um, I've tried to include only information from trusted and backed-up sources, though – I found through the online portion of my research that many self-identified Muslims and Arabians, which in this case refers to the antiquated regional area named by the Romans that largely lines up with the Arabian Peninsula, these folks who are posting online had a variety of stories of their own and details Mm -hmm. from their personal practice that were conflicting, not like any mythology from anywhere. 
So as we move forward, I just want to reiterate, I've compiled my best version of a cohesive story as I've learned it to date. However, countries, towns, families, they all have their own tales. And as always on Willing and Fable, we are learning. Mm-hmm. That's we're the community and rule. growing and we're doing our best and we research as best we can. But, you know, if you know more than we do or you want to enlighten us, you can always reach out. I, I get the feeling specifically with this topic that there is more to uncover. I would not rule out doing a second episode because this – okay. Yeah. This was really fun. Anyway, D&D. Let's talk about Jin in D&D. So they've appeared in media ranging from Pee Wee's Playhouse to Supernatural – but as today is our day to explore the TTRPG, the monster manual of D&D, let's look at the form that they take specifically in this universe. They first appeared in the white box set, Book 2, Monsters and Treasures, 1973. And that's before Aladdin came out, the Disney movie. So that's really interesting to think about. But wasn't the Disney movie based on... An older yes, story. we okay. will get to that. Okay. But I just wanted to point out that it's, you know, Aladdin is everyone's mm-hmm. first thought of genies. Famously, in this first release, they did not grant wishes. And though it wouldn't come into being until the release of The Fiend Folio in 1981, the current breakdown of the Ginny, used for both singular and plural within the text, they have... A complicated mythology. So in the current fifth edition, Ginny are only one of the primordial elemental types that make up the race of genies. Okay. So we have Tao of the elemental plane of earth, Ginny, elemental plane of air, Afriti, fire, and Marid, which is water. D&D Wiki says of this in-game race, quote, Genies are large, muscular, and colorful skinned creatures that resemble humanoids only in vague shape. Their appearances vary greatly between sub-races, with each of them reflecting their particular form of primordial energy in their personality and physical appearance. However, they all adorn themselves in fine flowing silk clothing, and their skin tones, hair, and eye coloring always lends toward their primordial elemental. In the RPG, genies are born when a soul melds with primordial matter from the elemental plane, though they don't retain the soul. Oh. Oh, I was going to say that sounded so cool up until they don't retain the soul. Imagine your soul blending with primordial matter from the elemental plane. That sounds amazing. It's It's a really interesting idea that you are made of a soul, but you don't keep it. Is it like the soul gets used up in your creation? I don't know how to unpack that. (laughs) Fair. The three wish genie in the lamp thing isn't a rule in Dungeons and Dragons, though there is a system for imprisoning any of the types of genie. Some may also grant wishes, though this ability is regularly restricted to the more powerful genies, depending Mm -hmm. on the specific lore, the manual, the game. Okay. Now I want to read a quote from D&D Beyond from their page on Ginny. And I just want to add for anyone who's unfamiliar, I'm attributing this quote to dndbeyond.com because that was my source. And while I'm frustrated to find this on their website, it's important to remember that they license 
the original Dungeons and Dragons content, so it's coming from Wizards of the Coast. Quote, Accepting servitors. The jinn believe that servitude is a matter of fate and that no being can contest the hand of fate. As a result of all the genies, jinn are the ones most amenable to servitude, though they never enjoy it. Jinn treat their slaves more like servants, deserving of kindness and protection, and they part with them reluctantly. When I read this, I had to stop researching for a while. Are they saying that jinn are the slaves? <laughs> it says they, they treat their slaves more like servants, so do they take do so, they take on slaves, but also are slaves themselves? I'm confused. Yes. In the world of D&D, they both can become slaves and are slaveholders. And I just, I'm, the jinn believe that servitude is a matter of fate, that no being can contest the hand of fate. As a result of all, the genies jinn are the most amenable to servitude. Like, end quote. What? Okay, right. that is a sentence that is so clearly written with the language of slaveholders oh, yeah. rather than enslaved peoples. Oh, absolutely. You know, they, they never enjoy it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, they accept fate? Absolutely not. This is what happens when you don't have a diverse group of people writing right. content. Um, it... I find that absolutely just ridiculous. <laughs> right. It's not great. It's not great. But, you know, well, there's no but. It's not great. And in all of our research, we have found this theme over and over again of problematically taking the parts of someone else's culture that you like to create something that many people enjoy, but it's a watered-down version of the thing it was supposed to be. And had you taken ideas based on cultures and separated it from its source material that's one that's a different thing to create something new based on your learnings i think is really cool and a fun storytelling perspective but to say that culture has this thing called a gin and i'm gonna take it and call it the same thing and twist it is where you see some problems a lot of the language surrounding that chunk that i pulled and depending on who's writing about it, because keep in mind, D&D has expanded to lots of people writing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just very othering. It's just very like, look, we took the culture of the folks that are not white and they are so different from us. And I don't fundamentally have a problem with a table of D&D &D players all collectively deciding to use this TTRPG as a way to explore the larger issue of slaveholding in our world. That is mm -hmm. something that a table can absolutely decide to do. D&D &D is a framework for storytelling. Do I think willing slave should be on the internet? Absolutely not. <laughs> so... Yeah. Let's let's learn about the real world lore of jinn because it's very different. Okay. They are shape-shifting spirits made from quote a smokeless fire or fire and air. And this contrasts with humans who Islam explains are made of clay and water, not unlike 
the origins the that you were describing. Right. Mm-hmm. These beings inhabit the earth before humans, and they live full lives parallel and unseen. They predate Islam, and like many pagan religious figures, were absorbed into the monotheistic religion as the cultural landscape of Arabia. Again, we're using the historical identifier for the area, think roughly the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Belief in jinn spread through Arabia, Turkey, North Africa, the Balkans, and has since made its way around the world. They are often called, quote, spirits because of a variety of figures that fall under the heading of jinn. They seem to live in a place neither earthly nor celestial. Yusef El Kaidi, writing for Inside Arabia, Voices of the Arab People, says, quote, The word jinn is, in fact, reiterated on many occasions in the Quran in association with humans, attesting to the Islamic belief that jinn belong to another nation that exists parallel to humans in another dimension. Muslims believe that these transparent and invisible beings have tremendous powers, are not predetermined by the laws of physics such as matter, weight, time, and place. Unlike humans, they straddle the invisible and the manifest worlds and move across dimensional boundaries. They can also travel anywhere in the blink of an eye and metamorphose into the shape of other beings such as cats, dogs, birds, serpents, or even humans. So far... They sound amazing. Yeah, they have a lot of really interesting and unique powers. The jinn are mentioned in the Quran 29 times, mainly in the 72nd chapter titled The Chapter of Jinn. The first verse of this chapter begins, quote, It has been revealed to me that a group of the jinn listened and said, Indeed, we have heard an amazing Quran, and among us are the righteous and among us are others not so. We were of divided ways. As the Quran says, jinn can be benevolent or malevolent. They can follow Islam or not follow Islam. And famously, they also live and die, marry, procreate, experience lust and hunger. So it sounds like they are extremely powerful spirits who live alongside us, but live lives alongside us in this sort of other realm. Yeah, it it has overlap for me to the she in Irish mm-hmm, lore. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of mythologies that have that. The Loa also have very mm-hmm. full lives um in in some Vodou tradition. I I think of the she specifically because there are so many stories of the she living lives that are very human. They do human activities. <laughs> and the idea that there's this parallel world where they can see us, but you can't always see mm-hmm. them. Leia Atachfini, writing for Vice, says, Jinn, who are part of Islam but not worshipped in it, with their free will and obscurity, have too much to teach us about culture, a people, and their multiple religions to be forgotten. I read that though jinn are not immortal, they may have once been considered closer to deity status, at least as Islam was coming into play. Mm -hmm. Previous to that, they occupied a space that Adam Ali, who's a lecturer at the University of Toronto, called, quote, the nymphs and satyrs of the desert. 
Which, as a teacher, seems like such a, a great choice of words because so many people are just familiar with Greek they know mythological what those words figures. Mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Seventh century Meccans offered sacrifices to the jinn and sought their guidance. And though it was travelers who primarily spread their stories, those who dwelt in villages and cities throughout the Middle East really defined the variety of beliefs that surround these spirits. Some famous jinn had names, other figures were absorbed into the heading of jinn, like uh, the sexual Mesopotamian demons kind of Mm -hmm. got wrapped up into that. And their prevalence spread and evolved until Islam really defined their role. In Islam, jinn are one of three intelligent beings created by God, humans, angels, and jinn. As Islam became an increasingly popular religion, that belief seemed to fall out of commonality and jinn kind of became more of the level of humans in this like cosmic sort of measure of power. Okay. They are subject to the judgment of Allah when they die. This is so interesting. This is way more interesting than the creatures that I see them as in popular culture. Yes. And it's really cool reading chats where people tell their individual lore of jinn because it's not always the same, but there is that cohesive string as with mm-hmm. as with any mythology. There is even an ancient mosque in Mecca called the Mosque of the Jinn that is dedicated to the jinn that accepted the Prophet Muhammad and it celebrates the jinn who follow the word of the Islamic God. That said, not all jinn are good or follow Islamic doctrine. Many filled the land with corruption until God sent his army of angels to drive them either, quote, to the corners of the world or, quote, from the earth in general. And here in these tellings, we meet a jinn named Azazel, like the fallen angel in the book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. Adam, the first man, makes an appearance, and we kind of arrive at the lore of jinn as it stands today. Adam Ali explains that, quote, The key guide to Islamic supernatural beings was called Marvels of Things and Miraculous Aspects of Things Existing. Its author was Zachariah al-Kazwini, 1203-1283, and his work was very popular in the medieval Middle East. End quote. The first portion of the book discusses the celestial world of the sun, the moon, planets, and heaven, including angels. The next portion of the book explored the four elements, the earth and its seven climes, the breakdown of, quote, the three kingdoms of nature, animal, plant, and mineral. And in the animal portion, there is a section exploring human anatomy before we get to the final section, which is on monsters, jinn, demons, and devils. And I think this is so cool because people think medieval and they only go to European castles. Absolutely. And and the Islamic Golden Age is just so cool to learn about. The way that they, Rowan, the way that they do math and geometry is... I, I watched a really cool documentary about math. I don't need to go into it, but it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I just think this text is so fascinating because it contains so many accurate scientific things Mm -hmm. that you are then associating this mystical world with science and in science you have that 
burden of proof. And in mythology, yes. you don't. So immediately, readers can assume that the monsters have faced that burden of proof. Right. Now, I've encountered multiple breakdowns of jinn. Mythology and fiction describes a three-group breakdown. Quote, jinn who fly through the air, jinn who take the shape of dogs and snakes, and jinn who travel in the same way as humans. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then life in Saudi Arabia breaks them into ten groups. Okay. And I just wanted to choose this as one of the many ones that I found because it really does paint a clear picture of the variety of stories that can come from these spirits. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to blaze through this because I'm so excited. Um, Hin, which means little in Arabic, and they're an animal type that appears as dogs. It reminds me of familiars that we just covered in Witches yes. Familiars. Mm-hmm. We have ghoul, which means beast, and they're shape-shifting jinn who feed off human flesh, steal corpses, and have a particular taste for travelers and children. In some cases, they appear like normal women to marry and entrap men, and in others, like in some Persian texts, they have donkey legs and goat horns. We're going back to satyrs there. Mm -hmm. Like, all of mm -hmm. these stories, you can just find such a cool parallel. Okay, three, we have the John. This is the natural enemy of the ghoul. These shapeshifters usually appear in the forms of whirlwinds or white camels, and they can reveal or hide a desert oasis. Ooh, okay. The Marid, which is a name you'll remember from the D&D, mm -hmm. they're massive jinn who are sometimes linked with giants. They are especially famous from pre-Islamic mythology. They have free will but they may be compelled to complete tasks. The Ifrit, wicked, powerful, and cunning, these infernal jinn are known to be enormous winged creatures associated with fire. Life in Saudi Arabia says, quote, They live underground in societies structured along ancient Arab tribal lines. They generally marry other jinn, but they can also marry a human being. Humans use magic force to enslave them or even kill them. I wonder if there's any, and maybe you'll get to this, what a marriage between a jinn and a human would mean if they produced a child. Mm. Please hold. Okay. Number six. <laughs> Sheik, meaning split in Arabic. These are a weaker type of spirit that... Looks like a monster and a half-forged creature. Okay, cool. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seven. Nasnas. Described in 1001 Nights as a half-human with half-head, one leg, and one arm. These are a weak type of jinn that are usually known to be the offspring of a human and a sheik jinn. Ah, okay. And they're illustrated in books as actually having a full split down the middle. They just operate <gasps> halfway as a half person. Wild. There's the palis, which are not particularly smart. They're easily 
fooled, and this type of spirit lives in the desert and attacks sleeping people, draining the blood from their bodies by licking the soles of their feet. Hmm. No. No, thank you. <laughs> there are so many illustrations of these just horrifying monsters sitting on people's chests, staring down at them. But they're described as footlickers. No, thank you. I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum, but mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Silats. They're one of the smartest gin types. They can easily take on a human appearance. And I read in one location that they might have been a misinterpretation of Mongolian warriors. I don't have a second source to back that up, but it did remind me of Selkie stories. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Shaitan, sometimes called the devil. These fiends or demons are mischievous jinn who put evil suggestions into the minds of humans. And they're sometimes called Iblis, but it seems that the term has overlap but is not completely interchangeable. Okay, okay. And I just want to highlight throughout this, that list, you know, so many of what these spirits do is similar to a story you are you know. We are all afraid of things that come up from under the bed. And lick your feet. Mm -hmm. And lick your feet. You know, there, there are so many stories of stupider magical creatures getting tricked or smarter infernal mm -hmm. creatures tricking us. There's, you know, the story of a magical being transforming into a beautiful woman to entrap a man is so common. And going from... The D&D &D language, which at times I found so othering and coming to this, I just want to emphasize how universal so many of these stories are and how versatile a djinn can be. Oh, my God. The reality of it is so much more interesting than the watered-down version that you find in pop culture. So many Americans' understanding of djinn is, as I said, probably limited to Disney's Aladdin. Amira El Zane writes in her book, Islam, Arabs, and the Intelligent World of the Jinn, quote, People in the West currently are more interested to learn about jihad, the veil, the status of women in Islam, and the various fundamentalist movements. They assume the jinn is a topic better left to Disney and popular culture, or at best, to anthropologists. Disney... Mm -hmm. got their inspiration from the book 1001 Nights, or what is regularly called the Arabian Nights in English. This is a collection of folktales from the Middle East that span from the 8th to the 14th century. Some of the influences for these stories are Persian, Greek, Arabic, Indian, Chinese, and Turkish, though the origins of each specific tale are usually unknown. Okay. It serves as a foundational text for many storytellers and researchers. Jinn appear in numerous stories within the book, including the tale of Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp, or ah. as it's alternatively called, the Fisherman and the Jinnie. Depending oh, on who you ask. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's markedly different from the cartoon movie. And I would encourage anyone to read it. It's it's not as simple as the kids' film. It's much richer. The plot is more complicated. It's available nearly anywhere online. Mm -hmm. Project Gutenberg. In both pre- and post-Islamic Arabia, jinn can speak and communicate with people. 
but poets are said to have a special connection with these beings. The term sha'ir means an Arabic literature poet who the jinn, quote, supernaturally inspired. Kuthayir Aza, a poet from the Umayyad period, 1661 to 750, famously wrote, quote, One day, a man on horseback came toward me until he was next to me. I looked at him. He was bizarre, a man made out of brass. He said to me, recite some poetry. Then he recited poetry to me. I said, who are you? He said, I am your double from the jinn. That is how I started reciting poetry, end quote. Interesting, the idea that you have a double. I know. That was the only place that I found a historical quote that included that. I also was interested in the fact that he was made out of brass. Yeah. All of this is so much more interesting than just a genie in a lamp. Yeah, if you're going to do D&D, imagine creating a warforged made out of brass that has... Uh, gin influences and including living in a parallel world that exists alongside of ours but you have you know maybe you're much more powerful in that realm maybe they aren't as powerful in our realm like well, there's right? just so much there's so much there and they took so little of it anyone who has played with me knows that i really like to play characters that are actually doubles they're like a pair um mm-hmm and I have a character that I've never gotten to play, and I've built two versions of them, and one is that they are a dead body that is puppeted by a spirit, um, Ooh. and the spirit wants to interact in the real world, so it's animating this corpse, like literally a marionette doll. Um, and then the other version is kind of Peter Pan-esque, like it's the creature's shadow is sentient and has its own situation cool. going on. But imagine the opportunity for gameplay if you have the the you in this world and then the Ginny you that has totally different powers. Or that is, you're connected to a Ginny. Right? That's the other – or, you know, that, that it, maybe it is not your kind of other or your doppelganger, but it is you have a, a bond between the two of you. Oh, you could – Two players could each be one, and then you could spend the time figuring that out. I, th- you guys, amazing. Amazing. This is incredible. <laughs> Ta'abata Sharan, a pre-Islamic poet, describes sleeping with a jinnya in his poem, How I Met the Ghoul. Quote, I lay upon her through the night, that in the morning I might see what had come to me. Behold. Two eyes in a hideous head, like the head of a cat, split-tongued, legs like a deformed fetus, the back of a dog, clothes of hair cloth or worn-out skins. Mm. So that's another one of those, it tricked me. She was sexy before, I swear. <laughs> Classic. Okay, now to my favorite part of this research, the unexpected part, the part where the world supplies... All I could have ever hoped for and more. So rather than reiterating a story that's fairly easy to find, seriously, 1001 Nights, there's so many good tales. Mm -hmm. Um, I stumbled across something in my research that fascinated me. So a tired soul, quote, can be possessed by a jinn. 
And this is a vulnerable person who is unhappy or struggles with depression, anxiety, or mental illness. The Global Journal of Archaeology and Anthropology writes of Jin, quote, Due to the mixture of this belief with local cultures, most Muslims believe that jinn are responsible for many psychological, mental, and physical diseases, and they are even responsible for social problems. End quote. Now, there are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, so mm-hmm. I would imagine that it is difficult to say, quote, most Muslims about anything. But... The influence of jinn on modern daily life, especially in relation to possession, appeared over and over again in my research. Interesting. In Islam, rejecting the existence of jinn is considered apostasy. Author Amira Elzine argues that, quote, one can't be Muslim if he, she doesn't have faith in jinn's existence because they are mentioned in the Quran and prophetic tradition. The Global Journal of Archaeology and Anthropology continues, quote, According to some, it is impossible that jinn can possess someone's body, affect him with sickness, or cause any harm. To them, the real Satan is a person's own soul. If he believes in something, then it seems to him to be true where it is a mere illusion caused by rage and desire. Hence, they conclude, there is no link between humans and jinn. So, there are two ways to accept the existence of jinn and still not commit apostasy. Mm-hmm. That is one of, these are only two writings of many of the ways that I saw it. Right. But practices for dealing with jinn possession go back to pre-Islam. According to Elzine, people would use a variety of items to protect their minds and bodies, including salt, bones, beads, incense, quote, charms written in Arabic, Hebrew, or Syriac, or the hanging around their necks of a dead animal's teeth, such as a fox or a cat, to frighten the jinn and keep them away. These practices haven't disappeared. The Cambridge University Press published an article in 2018 called Jinn and Mental Health, Looking at Jinn Possession in Modern Psychiatric Practice, and it was written by Simon Dane and Abdul Samad Ilai. Okay, I'm going to let them introduce their work. Quote, This article focuses on jinn possession and mental illness in Islam. After discussing spirit possession, Generally, and its classification in the DSM-5, we present an overview of several studies examining the role of jinn in mental distress in Muslims in the UK. We argue for collaborative working relationships between Islamic religious professionals and mental health professionals. Finally, we discuss potential areas for future research. I was not ready. I was not ready. I love that. I love that. Combining the idea of saying, hey, we want to take these religious professionals and combine them with mental health professionals to give people the best holistic care that we can. That is the world I want to live in. When I tell you that this is the best piece of reading, (laughs) (laughs) 
So they explore the way that possession is viewed through a variety of cultural lenses. They use historical use of possession as a means of explaining mental illness since the Sumerians defined it as demonic possession. They go into its role in the DSM-5. They note the race of the people who run the studies that they cite so that readers can understand how the presence of whiteness might affect the information that was gathered. Ugh. They point out that, quote, Possession worldwide is found more commonly in women and marginalized groups and may be a vehicle through which they can express their complaints in a context in which they can be heard. And they point out my absolute favorite bit, quote, It is important to note that this close affinity between spirit possession and mental illness is not unique to Islam, and similar beliefs are held in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism, as well as among contemporary evangelical Christians. And that detail just felt so important to me, because when I was reading that quote from D&D Beyond and some of the information on the jinni in that world, there was just so much othering. And mm -hmm. the idea of spirit possession is so clearly overlapping a belief that is widespread in Christianity. And it is such a prime example about how we share more than we don't. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think every culture we've covered so far has some form of possession as part of the way that they explain people's behaviors or the way that they interact with, with others or the world. It's not unique and it's not, it, you're right, it's such an othering thing the way that it, it is discussed and, and the idea that women and minorities are the ones who are usually seen as the ones being possessed because it's also a loss of power in possession and it's a way to control others aside from it being a way to make yourself heard yeah it's i mean it's multifaceted and i just think that like n new testament focused christians really like to distance themselves from the more evangelical beliefs associated with christianity when it's convenient for them we love to just, in America, put possession in movies mm -hmm. in a very Christian lens. But there isn't a high horse to get up on there. Like, as this freaking brilliant article points out, quote, Whereas a person with psychosis in the West may believe he is being controlled by a computer, a member of a community that believes in spirit possession may believe his body is being taken over by a demon. And they really, as you said, do go into detail about the importance of implementing a treatment plan for mental illness that embraces patients' spiritual beliefs. It's so important. It's holistic care. It's thinking of the person and what they need to be their best version, not a body or a mind that needs one thing to fix it that can be applied to all other people. And in the way that religious interpretation can vary between individuals, I read examples of folks who, you know, reference jinn in their lives affecting depression and, and mental illness, and it more closely mirrored what we discussed in our episode on Maori myths and how Hana Tapiata got into things. It mm -hmm. recognizing a mythological religious figure and how it influences you does not inherently mean that you are going to go what people imagine is like full poltergeist film. Right. Not at all. Not at all. And and that's such a one 
religion, one perspective way to look at it. You can believe there's possession existing, but not believe you have to tie people down to a bed and watch them contort themselves and climb up a wall in order to be saved. Yeah, no. So, for my story this week, I am going to retell you as faithfully as I can an actual story from this paper that describes gin possession in that article, Gin and Mental Health, Looking at Gin Possession in Modern Psychiatric Practice by Simon Dine and Abdul Samad Ilai. So this is your retelling of an actual event described in this paper? Yes. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. When they came to me, Aisha and her husband Jamil had been married for 30 years. They had four children together and had moved from Pakistan 20 years before. The years of joy and hard work they put into their partnership shone on their faces when they looked at one another. Aisha was 50 years old, a mature and loving mother. When she laughed, however, I could hear the unhindered joy of a young girl peeking through. I emphasize this because I was able to learn very little about Jamil past the basic information I could glean from survey questions. He grew up in a family that was very well-off and religious. Jamil had a generally happy childhood and had always succeeded at most tasks he tried. Aisha used the word optimistic to describe him more than once. Now, Jamil was gray. I don't mean in actual color, he just had that gloomy desaturation that depression can cast on a person. Dark circles under his eyes, yes, but more than that, as if his lungs could not fill, his spine could not straighten, and his lips could not smile. I could guess from the way his body moved him through the world that he was the sort to take up space, welcome newcomers, answer quickly with a joke. But who's to say, really? When one cannot reveal themselves, we use assumptions to plug those holes in our perception, and I would very much like to see the light shine through them when next he comes to my office. Their story was not the simple, traditional lack of information many patients provide. I'm always tired, can you help me, Doc? I'm sad, Doc, what's up with that? No. Aisha came with all the information I could have needed, and more. She described the way Jamil's symptoms began with small differences. He was more tired than usual, little inconveniences agitated him, he couldn't sleep, and sometimes she noticed that he would wipe away an unexpected tear when he thought she wasn't looking. Then his anger increased, and they would fight all the time over things that had never come up before. Her once passive husband was suddenly pounding his fists on doors and storming away to thunder with rage in another room. Jamil had nightmares that would wake him after midnight. He would sit up in bed, screaming and sweating, clutching the covers as if reaching for reality. He described horrible, inhuman creatures of every shape and size that would crawl from the edge of the bed all the way up to sit on his chest teeth dripping in hunger and demonic eyes boring holes into him as he writhed in fear beneath their weight. At the same time, their twin sons would cry and scream, absolutely inconsolable, at the same hour of the night. The pair could not explain it. 
Aisha was particularly upset describing the way her husband would become disquieted after reading the Quran. He would spasm and jerk in the oddest ways, and she prayed for months for guidance. She told me, her hands folded firmly in her lap as her husband sat on the examination table, that Allah revealed to her through a dream that all of Jamil's suffering came from Satan and jinn. I distinctly remember ducking my head to my notes to cover the frown that I knew covered my face. Aisha was going above and beyond, Jamil making himself vulnerable, and I had very little in my arsenal to combat a malevolent spirit and Satan. The pair shifted in their respective seats, perhaps uncomfortably imagining my disapproval. Have you sought any guidance based on these dreams? I asked. Well, apparently I was not their first call. An Islamic advisor had prescribed very specific instructions. Aisha was to recite portions of the Quran and then, as she explained, blow them into a mug of water, which the whole family would drink from for seven days. This practice would banish the mischievous jinn from their home. As the pair was sitting in my examination room, they didn't have to tell me that after the allotted week, Jamil was still suffering. So I prescribed an SSRI, paroxetine. I hoped caring for Jamil's depression would resolve all the symptoms and that the next visit would be filled only with discussions of blood panels and general physical fitness, as is customary for people of their age within my practice. But their follow-up visit was what really interested me. Jamil was happier. He still seemed weary, but his color had returned, and I could see in the way he stood in front of me that he enjoyed being a tall man. They held hands while they recounted their story, and Jamil spun a little ring that Aisha wore on her pinky. My prescription had done very little, it seemed, so Aisha took her husband to the Raki, a title I wish I'd asked for more explanation on, perhaps next time. On this visit, they learned not only that Jamil was possessed by a jinn, but that his cousin in Pakistan had caused Jamil's suffering with witchcraft. The way she explained it called half a dozen horror movies to mind, but they both seemed very practical about the whole thing. The practitioner instructed Jamil to drink olive oil, then for multiple sessions of reciting the Quran, the jinn revealed itself and agreed to leave the tortured man. They thanked me for all my work, and Jamil declined a refill for his prescription. I sputtered a bit, as I'd clearly done very little to ease my patient's suffering. But Jamil just smiled and shook my hand on the way out. I hope you'll find this information useful. I know it's given me quite a lot to think about. Wow. So, just for clarification, mm -hmm. uh, I added a narrator, clearly, and I right. just made the narrator the general practitioner that was mentioned in the file who prescribed the SSRI. Mm -hmm. Aside from the embellishment of writing, it was all the beats that actually happened. The treatment, as it was described, the night terrors that he had, he just described as creatures of all sorts. Right. And I just found that whole case study so fascinating. Yeah. And the the way they so practically handled what they found the solution That's to. That's exactly what I was going to say. They mm -hmm. were just so practical about it. And 
you know, I we, we have no way of knowing because it's writing, but I just appreciated how in the text the authors didn't treat those treatment options any differently than they treated the prescription right. of the SSRI because it worked. I mean, the point is him being happy and healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, that was so interesting. I just wanted to include that especially because I think one of the traps that TTRPG players will sometimes fall into uh, is, you know, imagining that all of these figures exist only in the past. Right. And right. this is very much alive and present and it taught me so much. So that's Jin for today. The way you tell stories is beautiful. There's so many times you write things that just, I sit there and I'm in awe of the way you weave words together. Oh, even, thanks. Even when you're telling a practical story about someone's <laughs> diagnosis. It's so good. I just wanted to have everyone in the story exhibit the same kind of compassion that I gleaned from reading this mm-hmm. academic paper. And everyone needs to know this actual paper is in our show notes. You can find it. It is worth reading. And the story that I wrote is 100% just a retelling of the actual story that these researchers included in, in their paper that they worked very hard on. So please definitely go check that out. All right. Monster manual, babe. We talked about D&D and monsters, and I think it's time for you to tell me something good. My something good this week. Uh, so on the day of Halloween, we went to our local pumpkin patch air Mm -hmm. quotes tracy and i grew up in the country where there are actual pumpkin patches this was like a beautiful little stand set up and Ah, gotcha okay (laughs) yeah they're laid out and everyone can pick them and it's this big thing with a petting zoo and all that but it is not like pumpkin patches where we're from but we went on halloween because we didn't have time to carve pumpkins in october and Mm -hmm. we still want to So we got them and we got so many pumpkins because we picked some up for our friends and for decoration that the lovely woman just stopped charging us. She just said, you know, (laughs) she was like, after Halloween, they all go away anyway. So um, you saved some pumpkins. (laughs) It was really fun. We picked up a couple for friends of ours. We're going to do a belated Halloween pumpkin carving, which I do a lot for the record. I dye easter eggs all the time in october i prefer easter egg dyeing if i'm being frank um just movable holidays Mm -hmm. but they're out in our little back patio right now and our local tiny tiny little bird has just decided he loves sitting on the little pumpkin stems that is so precious it's so precious he just hops from one little pumpkin stem to the other and it seems like every time i go by there he's just hanging out on a little pumpkin. I love that for him. I love that energy. Have you named this bird? No, no. I haven't. See, the pumpkins lured him out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Previously, he was a little more elusive. I have no clue what kind of bird he is. He is so light that he sits on aloe leaves and they don't even dip down. Sweet baby. He's just a little boy. <laughs> He's just a little lad. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I... My 
My something good is that it is called the season of the witch, not the month of the witch, and I will be extending the spookiness for as long as I please. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Tracy, tell me something good. So mine, so, I mean, aside from the fact that we had Halloween, Rowan dressed as her fairy, I dressed as Lucky from Britney Spears' music video. So good. (laughs) Trick-or-treating was great. There were so many kids in my neighborhood. I had plenty of candy. I could even give a bag to my neighbor who ran out. But my something good is actually just making Spotify playlists. I made a new one recently, and I had a lot of fun making it. It was a very cathartic one. It's called Screaming Into the Void, if you want to look at it. I'm such a stalker. I, <laughs> I sent it to, <laughs> I sent it to Rowan because she always likes listening to my playlist. And I know she doesn't make her own. Y'all, she had already found it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always just go to your Spotify when I want to listen to music because I really love your playlist. So I don't even bother anymore. <laughs> I love and that. you making me playlist has, goes back to when I first got my first car in high school. Mm-hmm. You made me a mix CD. And, like, mix CDs are love. Oh, that was and my M.O. in high school. I made everyone mix CDs. And, like, there was one year I made everyone a mix CD for Christmas. Yes! And then I wrote out why I put each song on their CD. Yes! Which you I stole from Lisa, my friend Lisa, whose wedding I was at a couple weeks ago. She did that for me, and it was still one of the most awful gifts I've ever gotten. I'm so crushed. When I sold that car, uh, the six-disc changer had locked up and it, you couldn't get anything out of it. So mm. that CD and CDs that had gotten locked in there in high school all had to go. It's okay. It. Things move on. Time it's marches true. forward. I don't even know if I have a good CD player anymore. But Tracy, your your playlists are iconic. <laughs> Thank you. They make me happy. I've been really enjoying this one. So it was just fun to sit down and curate songs. Half of them are ones I knew really well. The other half were Spotify being very good at suggesting possible songs and clicking through and playing them and figuring out which ones fit the vibe and, and all that. So that's my something good. Feel free to check it out if you want. Spotify is the best, but it's also killing me. Oh, yeah. As with everything in our society. I owe so much to Spotify. <laughs> I have been a big fan of Spotify. I started using Spotify in 2011. It's been 10 years. I used it when it was just a dinky little desktop app. <laughs> You're the OG. I'm the OG. <laughs> All right. So um, I brought an extra additional something good for Ooh, you. Okay. I would love to say it's a thank you for the playlist. It's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can say it is. It's fine. Sure. Um. Scroll down a bit okay. and okay. you'll find a five-star review <gasps> that was on posted on Apple Podcasts for us. You really hid this. Ooh, can I read it? Yeah, please. Okay, the title is Bingeworthy. The host tells such great stories. So happy I found this. It makes my day when a new episode appears. I love listening while drinking my coffee. It's like sitting with a couple friends. I love their energy. From Allison in Canada. Oh, that's just the nicest review. We always talk about how happy it makes us when people say they feel like they're talking to friends. And first of all, this person loves coffee. Thank you, Allison. Me too. Although I love tea as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm not even forming words. This is the day of me not forming words. That it, Thank you for sharing this, Rowan. It just made me so happy. I knew you'd like it. And you and I, even before having a podcast, would talk about how 
when we put on our favorite podcast, it feels like you're just hanging out with your buds. Yes. Yeah. So when people say that to us, it is the absolute highest form of praise because podcasts have gotten me through so many rough times. Yeah. Just having someone there. Having the voices, having comforting voices, hanging out with you. Finding your people. Yes. Yes. So thank you for reviewing so much. It really it really helps the podcast. It helps people find the podcast. But mm-hmm. also thank you. It means a lot to us as well. <laughs> it does. And and again, thank you to Greenleaf Geek for sponsoring this episode. This is probably the first of many Monster Manual episodes to come. Mm-hmm. And we owe that all to Leah. It is really cool getting to connect our love of mythology with D&D. And she has always been so supportive in that regard. She, she yes-ands us to the ends of the earth. She's the best. We absolutely would not be able to make this podcast without support from brands like Greenleaf Geek. Sponsored episodes like this are such a big deal for us. So please know that it is absolutely our privilege to do it and it makes season two possible. It does. She's amazing. She's just taken on so many of the things that we've done and incorporated them. She made the Wizard and the Rogue dice sets as well. Uh, so that's a set for Thea and a set for Rosalind that she custom made for, for Rowan and myself. If you go on her website, you can find the Blood Oath and the Noble Magic dice in her curated collection that you can buy, which she just came up with. I mean, she's she brought the idea to us. She's this amazing artist. She curates all these amazing things. Truly, this is not because she is sponsoring us that we talk so highly of her and her store and all the work that she's done. We just genuinely, firmly, wholeheartedly believe in her and everything that she's created. It's true. We don't have to like everyone that supports the podcast. As it stands, we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and since since we're talking about the dice, don't forget, guys, there is a buy one, get one 50% off on the shop for all of November. And if you want Wizard and Rogue dice, if you want Blood Oath and Noble Magic dice, if you're part of our community and you like those stories... Please consider getting those ones because it lets Leah and other companies that work with us know that our community likes our collaborations. And when you support the people who support us, make sure to use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order at Greenleaf Geek. Some restrictions apply. And don't forget to check out Greenleaf Geek on Instagram and Twitter. Stop by, leave a kind word. Our Fable family is always filled with the loveliest people on the internet, so spread that to Leah. We would love to make it easier for other people to find her great work. And thank you so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with a telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. 
We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Mmm, gravity.